This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated there. My name is Anthony. And my name is Sky. We've never done an intro like that before. <laughs> I know. Shaking it up. I season three. Try that. Shake it up. Season three. Well, how's it going, Sky? It's good. Um, yeah, I just am plugging away with school. I do want to apologize if I sound a little bit different today. I am sick, just hopefully getting over a cold flu sort of sort of thing. So if I sound a little different, I'm sniffling a little bit more, that's why. But other than that, things are good. How about you, Anthony? Oh, not too bad. Just uh I'm feeling pretty healthy. I just got out of a cold shower. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. (laughs) We just had uh, Valentine's Day at Uh the old pen, romancing the pen, so thank you all for coming to that. Uh, I know this is coming out about a month and a half later, but... (laughs) (laughs) Still, thank you. We appreciate it. Well, um, should we get started? I think you are first this week. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to harken back to 100 years ago when Prohibition began in 1920. So I thought, you know, why not study some Prohibition inmate? And this is the year of uh, suffrage as well. So why don't we talk about women's groups? So I chose a man that uh, you'll see his his connection with both things, Prohibition and the women's groups in Idaho. His name? Henry Tilden Pointer, number 3126 and number 6524. So my sources today are the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, inmate files from the Idaho State Archives, an article on the Idaho State University website, Division of Health Services named after Pocatello's iconic Kasiska family, Reports of cases argued and determined in the Supreme Court of the State of Idaho, Volume 34, Idaho Women in History by Betty Penson Ward, and it's the volume two of that book, which is so good, and I I need to send you a copy of it. Mm. A VinePair.com article titled, Were Bootleggers Released When Prohibition Ended? So I had a little bit of a dilemma studying this guy, uh, and you'll see at the end of the episode why. I almost didn't want to tell his story, but I think it's so... It just it's just such a big part of the nineteen twenties. And well, Idaho, of course, we had prohibition in nineteen sixteen, four years before it was federally, you know, across the country enacted with the eighteenth amendment. But, and uh, suffrage twenty four years before, so Oh, you're good. It was eighteen ninety six, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Henry Tilden, I'm just gonna go right into his story and I uh I don't know, you'll have to tell me what you think about the end of his story. Cause okay. it, 
really kind of bummed me out because it was such a fascinating thing mm. until I found out his second crime. So oh. he is born in Edmonton, Kentucky on October 21st, 1876. And of course, Kentucky is a state known for bourbon, moonshine, coal, bluegrass music, and fried chicken. He's the first child born a year after his parents, William Pointer and Elizabeth Susan Barron, married. And in 1880, he appeared in the census living in Fairview, Kentucky, which is the birthplace of Jefferson Davis, as you may remember, was the president of the Confederate States of America during the Civil War. Yes. So that great schism of American history. His younger brother, Robert, and his parents uh, were all living in Fairview in 1880. And over the years, the family would keep growing and growing. And in the 1900 census, Henry appears in Glenville, Kentucky, which is north of Fairview, living with his younger brothers, Robert, Eugene, Herbert, and Edgar, and his sister, Martha. And it seemed that the family had a skill in carpentry, which might explain all of their moving as they were going from Mm. town to town and, and doing construction work. Five years later, his father William dies in Fair Play, Kentucky on May 11, 1905, at the age of 62, which uh, may have spurred on part of his family actually moving to Idaho, which they do in 1908, three years after his death. How old was Henry? Henry, so he's born in 1876. So, so at this point, he's he's about 29, okay. 30. And he's still living with so his family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was just from 24 when he's on that census living with his family in 1900. So he moves to Pocatello, Idaho, and marries a woman named Lena Jensen on July 26, 1912. And the couple ended up having three children together named Ray, Fred, and William. And he's listed in the Pocatello City Directory as a contractor in that city. His younger brother, Eugene, lived just a couple houses away from him on North Main Street in Pocatello working as a carpenter. So it seems like it was a whole family job being carpenters and contractors. By 1915, Henry is listed in the newspaper in the Gate City, which is uh, Pocatello's nickname at this time, as constructing two apartment houses. One had 24 apartments and the other was slated to have 12. The construction was during this big year for Pocatello, which they had all these uh, construction projects, several homes and modern office buildings were being constructed. And he was considered one of the top contractors and carpenters in Pocatello at this time. In May of 1915, Pocatello enacts the local option law, allowing the town to make liquor illegal. So a year before it's a state law making, you know, prohibiting the sale of liquor, uh, Pocatello starts it a year early. And the owner of the Bannock Hotel, which was considered the preeminent hotel in Pocatello, his name was William Frederick Kasiska. He was caught bootlegging liquor on several occasions. And Kasiska had emigrated to the United States from Eastern Europe in 1881. Mm-hmm. He settled in Pocatello in the 1890s, became a skilled financier and mayor of Pocatello in 1895, and basically just grew his wealth and investment in all these banks and ranches and real estate. But despite all this status in Pocatello, his hotel was continuously being raided for liquor. I always find it so interesting that so many prohibition violators tend to be European. Right. So I always just find that it's just such an interesting phenomenon in that, like, it's so much a part of European culture in a way that it isn't and wasn't in American culture Uh that they just, it's not because they want to break the law, but it's like, why give up this thing that we have always grown up with just because... Americans like 
don't like it. So I always find that just such an interesting phenomenon. I mean, this this story, it's it's not directly connected to Henry, but this is happening in Pocatello, and it's a huge story. And, you know, Henry may may have bumped shoulders with him. He may have helped with construction projects and things like that with Kasiska. So that's why I'm like, I have to tell this guy's story. Sure. So after being raided for liquor several times, authorities actually enter the district court and secure an order of injunction, which branded the hotel a common nuisance. That's how they labeled it. And so the sheriff actually took charge of the hotel and literally padlocked the doors and windows shut. It's the first case of its kind in Bannock County. And in the Wallace Minor newspaper, we get a sense of what it was like when this law was enacted. It said, uh, a citizen must not even permit his breath to smell of chewing gum flavor. $5,000 bail bond for Kasiska and 8000 for Dick Jones, who is alleged to have served the fermented grape juice. The complaint alleges that Mr. Kasiska's memory is defective, that on sundry and diverse occasions he had been remonstrated with and even punished for dispensing exhilarating waters within the confines of his hotel, which is my favorite way to describe alcohol now, exhilarating water. Exhilarating waters. <laughs> that notwithstanding the repeated warnings and legal flagellations, he would not desist and confine his liquor service to the Pocatello Waterworks or the product of the grand ruminant, the cow. So <laughs> he's supposed to be dumping all of his booze, but he has not done that. And so sure enough, he's going to get busted. Why don't our newspapers still use language like that? I think reading the news is as depressing as it tends to be these days would be a lot more exciting if they wrote like that. Yeah, a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah, it's kind of tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think because they didn't have like the Daily Show and, right. and, you know, comedy, they got to kind of fulfill that. And now it's like we've got to be very serious and we can't offend anybody. Fair enough. And- Fair enough. <laughs> It's so crazy. This is 1915. Sheriffs go in and they padlock and take control of his hotel, which is the biggest hotel, the most prominent one in in our gateway city, Pocatello, right? So it's just just wild that, that this could happen. So he files all these writs to the court stating that there's no due process for them to take over his hotel. And it's extremely dangerous having padlocks on it because the place could burn down or as he described it, prowling tramps and those criminally inclined might want to break in and rob the place. All these people were traveling into Pocatello and had to actually go elsewhere to find hotel rooms. So it's sucking out all kinds of money from the town. Kasiska, I mean, he's losing all kinds of money. After all this time, it takes um, about seven months before the hotel is reopened again. And the padlocks are taken off the door. So that's in November of 1915. And Kasiska discussed in 1916 actually demolishing the building and turning it into a $250,000 luxury hotel. But instead, in the fall of 1917, he actually sells it to former Governor James H. Brady, who you might remember from the Barney F. O'Neill episode, episode 18. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, an Idaho senator at this time. He drafted up plans to have the hotel rebuilt and refitted, But he died 
just a couple months after this purchase from a heart attack while serving an office in Washington, D.C. Mm. on January 13th, 1918. So his family actually spent the half a million dollars to rebuild it into the Bannock Hotel, which actually that new iteration of this hotel stood until 1893. Mm. William Kosiska, it seemed like it didn't really affect him too much because he was so wealthy that his wealth continues on. Today, there's actually a scholarship dedicated to his legacy at the Idaho State University. Oh. As of 2017, more than 6,700 ISU students have received the Kasiska Scholarship, helping them to earn their degrees in the medical field. Wow. Kind of a weird little rabbit hole I went down, but this is kind of one of those huge cases of prohibition in Idaho, and it's in the town that Henry is living in, and he would have known from ground zero the difficulties, the drawbacks of getting into the bootlegging field. But uh, it seems that this exhilarating water had a market in the underground and the potential for, I mean, riches, really. Mm -hmm. I found in several Idaho cases that the going rate for bootleg liquor was $5 a quart. And for our listeners, one quart is equal to two pints. So two pints, like two Two beers at a bar, $5 in 1916 is equal to about $118 today. Holy crap. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, if you were hurting for money, this was a good field to go into. Yeah. And on January 1st, 1916, Idaho adopts statewide prohibition, making the sale and possession of intoxicating liquor illegal. Of course, this is four years before the federal government enacts it in 1920. And punishment in Idaho in 1916 looks like this. First, a maximum jail sentence of six months in jail just for being drunk, as well as several fines. And then having or transporting whiskey was a misdemeanor punishable with a fine and jail time. And then the second charge was actually a a felony punishable with not less than one and not more than two years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Yet, you know, you get one slap on the wrist before you have to do hard time. Mm. And I read in one newspaper describing in the courthouse in St. Marie's, they actually dumped 50 gallons of liquor into the gutter, Mm. but they had to return each of the containers, which, as the newspaper described, were carefully preserved to be returned to their owners along with suitcases, trunks, or other receptacles in which the liquor was captured, as under law, only the liquor itself could be confiscated. Which is just so interesting to me that they were, like, getting their stills back and their, like... (laughs) you know, barrels and all these different things back. Just like, don't do it again. We'll bust you. But here you go. Here's your mug. (laughs) So besides spearheading prohibition, 1916 was a year of large victories for the nearly 100 women's groups throughout the state. The Council for Women Voters urged the judges of Ada County to impanel women for jury service. And they started doing that by the end of the year. And uh, reading rooms, like Sky mentioned on a previous episode, Mm -hmm. they popped up in cities throughout the state. Night classes were being held by the Inter-Church Council of Women and the Burbank Federation to teach newly arrived women immigrants English in the evenings, which is really cool. Parks and cemeteries were being improved throughout the state, and society in general was being improved from the role women were playing within these clubs. Opinions of the upper echelon of society was being shaped with the help of these organizations. Mm. And you'll see 
in Henry's case in just a moment. In 1917, the first woman ran for Boise City Council named Miss Costin, and she held several rallies, which were popular, and uh, she spoke in the city on several occasions. And when she was asked what she could do on city council, she said she could tell in fewer words what she could not do, as it would take her some time to tell what she could do. This idea of whether women could do anything outside of the home dated back to the primitive times when the man did the fighting and the women remained in the hut to prepare such food as would give him strength to do more fighting. With the entire change in social conditions since that time has come, a change in employment. And now there were few things a woman could not do. Which I thought was just like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Despite this, this awesome campaign that she has and all the backing from all these women's groups... She loses the election, mm. and Boise's first councilwoman, guess when she's elected? Mm, I don't like this game. Um, I'm going <laughs> to say probably not until the 1970s. Oh, actually, it's sooner than that. Oh. 1953. That actually is surprising to me. Right? I know. That's what I thought, too. Her name was Miss C.W. Hedinger. And in her 1953 victory write-up, she downplayed herself with this title. Boise's first councilwoman is no politician. She would rather be a housewife than the president, says Winner. And this story, like, follows talking about her family and her love of cooking and being a mother and a wife and her extensive time working with civic clubs as the uh, president of the Columbian Club, the president of the Women's Council of the First Christian Church, the vice director of the National Association of Parliamentarians, a member of the Order of the Eastern Stars, Iris Temples, Daughters of the Nile, and the YWCA. And so, like, she's basically like, oh, I prefer to be a mother and all this stuff, even though she's been the head of all these different clubs for all these years. And, like, just to even add to it, they included recipes at the bottom of this for her favorite dishes that she makes for parties and things, for date pudding. Well, and I it's guess... It's so telling. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, though, is even though that it, it's surprising that it happens in the 50s, because it's such a novel thing... And in the 1950s, women are supposed to stay home. It's mm-hmm. it's such a, a delicate balancing act that this media is trying to do of being like, wow, isn't this cool that this woman is being, you know, she's on the city council, but she's also not letting that interfere with her wifely duties. Right. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, they asked her, like, you know, what, what, what are you going to do? And she said, I have to go slow in order to prove a woman can do a council man's job. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. It's also fascinating at this time that since really women have sort of tried to break into these areas that have been reserved exclusively for so long for men, that sort of the, the typical idea that sort of pervades breaking these sort of glass ceilings, as it were, is that you know, women have to do everything perfect or else Mm -hmm. they're going to be like, everyone's going to point to that and say like, see, women shouldn't be in that. So there's, it's like, it's, it's tough. And I admire her, her guts to throw her hat in the ring in the 1950s and win. Right. Yeah. So fascinating. Yeah, I hope we get to talk more about some of these things, future episodes, especially this year. Mm-hmm. These women's groups were very, very influential. And being the target of one of these clubs could cost somebody's reputation. Mm-hmm. And in Henry's case, it would cost him his freedom. So his trouble begins 
in January 1917 when he boards a train heading south at Gibson Station between Pocatello and Blackfoot, which is it's just north of Fort Hall Indian Reservation. And the police realized that most bootleg whiskey was traveling via train in suitcases. And most of these suitcases were extremely heavy. So bootleggers, they would get busted as they strained to carry their luggage from the train. And officers would just wait at the stations and, and see who is having a difficult time swinging their, uh, their luggage around. Right. And the newspaper actually states that the Pocatello sheriff has the nose for news. He suspected that somebody would get off the train going south at Gibson Station the other day and went up with his deputies to meet the chance arrival. H.T. Pointer disembarked at said station with a supply of whiskey amounting to 15 cases, met the sheriff at Ross Fork, and immediately lost possession of the treasure. And Ross Fork is just east of Fort Hall. And I found in another article that 15 cases of whiskey amounted to about $720. Oh. Any guesses on how much that is today? <laughs> this is one of my favorite games. Seven hundred twenty dollars in nineteen seventeen. I'm gonna guess that is uh, two thousand dollars. Fourteen thousand five hundred. Oh, Dang it! I was nowhere near. Oh my god! That is a lot of money. Right? How could you not get into bootlegging mm. back at this time? With with oh. That's so crazy. Yeah. That's so much money. That is so much money. So he, in December, he's actually fined $500 and sentenced to serve six months in jail. He ends up only serving 37 days before his release. And his luck is not getting any better. He actually had built a two-car garage at his home at the beginning of February 1917. And on February 17th, 1917, one of the vehicles, because he had two cars... They were, uh, one of them was in the shop with repairmen all day, and it was returned to the new garage about midnight when the place suddenly caught fire. It burned the whole garage that he had just constructed to the ground and reduced the vehicles to a mass of junk. And it was theorized that a couple of the uh, battery wires may have short-circuited and ignited gasoline in the car. Uh, Fortunately for Henry, both cars were insured for $800 and $1,000, so... Yeah, I've always I've, I'm kind of curious if that maybe was not an accident, right. but we can never know. Now Henry seemed unfazed by this unlucky streak of uh, being busted for prohibition crimes in his garage burning down right. because he went back into the bootlegging business. And on May 18th, 1918, he and two other men named W. S. Hobson and Jack Coble were arrested for possession of intoxicating liquor. And they were actually in the process of unloading several cases of whiskey from a car in an alleyway in Pocatello when police happened to turn up and bust them. Now, the three appealed their cases to the Idaho Supreme Court, and this was Henry's second arrest for a prohibition crime, mm-hmm. which made it a felony. Right. And he claimed that it was a frame-up, and he was merely carrying some Greeks who were taking some booze along. In January 1919, he was charged with being a persistent violator of state prohibition laws and was found guilty after the jury deliberated for five hours on his case. He was sentenced to serve from one to two years in the Iowa State Penitentiary, but immediately filed for an appeal to the Supreme Court again, and they reduced his sentence to six months in jail. But by November, Governor D.W. Davis actually reprieved Henry until a meeting of the Board of Pardons could discuss his case on January 5th, 1921. 
And so he doesn't serve any time for the second charge and is actually, you know, released by a governor writ, which is just crazy, it, like to be pardoned by the governor for something like this. Right. Uh, so he's out. He's fine. But as soon as the governor does this, all these protests begin rolling in against the governor's actions. The Bannock County District Attorney, Isaac McDougall, actually files a protest with the State Board of Pardons, which showed all the times Henry had been charged and urged that he shouldn't be pardoned. And this large crowd actually gathered at the Idaho Technical Institute in Pocatello to listen to Judge F.G. Bale speak. And he called on the citizens to back up County Prosecutor Isaac McDougall in his protest against the pardon of Henry Pointer. And this drew wild cheers from the crowd. They were all like, yeah, send him to prison, send him to prison. The council, it was made up of representatives from every organization in the city, and they cheered for Judge Bale's call for law and order, as well as a full-time health officer, juvenile detention home, a parent-teacher organization, and the bettering of the housing conditions in the city. And he spoke out against newsies, which, you know, newsboys, like we talk about with uh, Barney O'Neill, selling papers on the street corners. He basically wanted to clean up the city, and the first thing the city could do was uphold the state and the nation's laws and convict Henry Poiter. A month later, Henry was being vilified by his most daunting foe, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they actually draft up a resolution against Henry in December of 1920, which says, Whereas Henry Pointer of Pocatello, Idaho, was convicted in the District Court of Bannock County, Idaho, December 20th, 1917, for transporting intoxicating liquor by a jury, and was sentenced by the court to serve a term of six months in the county jail and pay a fine of $500, whereas the said judgment was affirmed by the Supreme Court of the State of Idaho, and whereas he, said Henry Pointer, was reprieved by governor after serving only 37 days in jail. Whereas he said Henry Pointer was brought the courts of Bannock County into contempt and for a long time persistently and fragrantly and openly violated the law and defied the officers, and whereas he has made applications to the Board of Pardons of the state of Idaho for a full and complete pardon to be released from serving the balance of said jail sentence, and whereas the WCTU has made a full and careful investigation of the facts surrounding the case, now, therefore, be it resolved by the WCTU of Pocatello, Idaho, that they hereby protest to the board against the action of the governor in reprieving the said Henry Pointer, and we further respectfully ask the Board of Pardons to deny the application of the defendant for a pardon. We further inform the board that it is our opinion the ends of justice will be met only by the defendant serving his full time in the county jail. We further feel that it will be a blot on the state of Idaho if the man is pardoned. Huh. Yeah, this is published in the Idaho Statesman December 23rd, 1920, and it's followed a couple weeks later on January 5th, 1921, when another women's civic group called the Good Citizenship Club met at the Carnegie Library and endorsed the suggestion made by the Council of Women Voters that a woman be put up for city council in the coming election and that Henry be sent to prison and uh they appointed this woman named mrs john c rice to run for city council and she seemed like a, a great person to do it and she also happened to be the wife of idaho supreme court chief justice john c rice who would be looking at henry's appeal 
that could be a little problematic oh, for Henry. Uh-huh. And uh, more and more of these groups start to go up against him. The WCTU of Caldwell in Canyon County got word about his potential pardon and joined the Pocatello branch and the Good Citizenship Club in protesting his pardon. And they write in to the governor and, and to the courts to have him arrested. He fights and fights and fights the charge, and his attorneys argue that uh, he never pled guilty in person in the first case, that the plea was entered by his legal counsel, which meant he never made a personal admission to guilt. And then his second plea was that he was fined for the first arrest and not imposed with the entire six-month sentence of imprisonment in the county jail. The Idaho Supreme Court justices analyzed his case, including Mr. John C. Rice, Supreme Court Justice, who decided after nearly three years of fighting, Henry was guilty and must serve time for his persistent violation of prohibition laws and uphold the sentence of one to two years at the Idaho State Penitentiary to hard labor. One Idaho Statesman article said that the opinions written at the time the court decided the case were together one of the longest ever handed down by the court. And it is very long. I read the entire thing, and yeah, it was pretty fascinating. I've I've never read any of the Prohibition-era Supreme Court things. It's interesting to me, too, that he really, like, even though it was a lot of alcohol, it was, like, a pretty simple... Like, you, your prohibition charges weren't divided by, like, it was just, like, he's in on a prohibition violation, and yet it is, like, so controversial that it's some of the longest Supreme Court decisions. I just, I find it really, just prohibition is such a weird aberration in our, our country's history. It really is, yeah. It's really fascinating. It's probably one of my new favorite subjects, and I, you know, I went down several hours worth of rabbit holes mm-hmm. looking up people getting busted and shootouts that were happening mm-hmm. in Idaho and wow there are some crazy crazy stories and and a lot of those folks didn't get caught like they never got busted and I found one case there were like five giant barrels f- that were empty that were n- found next to the Snake River and police were like well we found this and uh yeah looks like they got away with it <laughs> you know how much money did somebody make off of these giant barrels of moonshine that were being doled out? Anyway, from May 18, 1918 until March 27, 1922, Henry had spent countless hours and money fighting the battle, and he loses. And on April 1, 1922, on April Fool's Day, he shows up at the office of the Attorney General Roy Black in Boise, unguarded and unannounced. And Roy phoned Warden W.L. Cuddy, who brought Henry Pointer to the prison. Now, his intake information. Age, 45. Height, 5 feet 11 and 5 eighths inches, so about, about my height. Weight, 134 pounds. Built tall and slim. Hair, dark brown. Eyes, hazel. Complexion, regular. Born in Kentucky on October 21st, 1876. Occupation, carpenter and contractor. Received from Bannock County, April 1st, 1922. Sentence 1-2. to Married with three children. Father died when he was 28. Mother still living. He had received religious and Sunday school in different churches, but currently wasn't part of one. He had attended school for nine years. He was really well educated. 
Uh, he was a moderate drinker and didn't use tobacco or drugs. His teeth were in good condition, and he came in with $6.30 and a watch. And his Brutillion basically just shows scars on both hands and thumbs, which, you know, is kind of par for the course for carpenters. Two days after his arrival in the prison, the prosecuting attorney sent his intake form, which asked him to describe the character of Henry's associate. And, and uh, the prosecuting attorney wrote, he had a good family until he got to bootlegging. He was a very respectable citizen and associates good. And asked if he had been in any previous trouble, never in trouble except for selling whiskey. As a fellow citizen in the town, the prosecuting attorney described Henry Pointer as a law-abiding citizen, good neighbor, good worker, first-class carpenter and contractor, and do not think that he would violate a law in the world except for the whiskey law, which he violated for several years, principally as a wholesaler. Further, when asked if he is a habitual criminal, he writes, he is not a habitual criminal except for the whiskey question. <laughs> this reminds me of when I did Hannah Folden. Do you remember how they also said about her, like, she's a really good citizen. She has raised her children right. She has been a productive member of society, but she has this liquor issue. Uh-huh. And that, yeah, exactly. that's, that's such a common theme is that these people aren't bad people, but because we've criminalized their activity, they're now having to join the ranks of these people who are, who did not, you know, who aren't productive members of society in some cases and who aren't raising their families well in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because it seems like even the Supreme Court, there was one justice that took Henry's side and, you know, prohibition was not popular i and i don't think it I, we, we had like 40 just over 40 men who were served sentences at the idaho state penitentiary for prohibition crimes for persistent violation of prohibition and that's not many people for all the stories that i've dug up on people who are breaking prohibition laws like i i don't think it was a popular thing to convict and i i think henry would have gotten off if it hadn't been for the women's organizations that went against him mm. because they wanted to improve society. And right. that was the whole idea of prohibition in the first place was, you know, all these men, particularly uh, in most cases, are squandering the family's money on booze and it's causing all this lawlessness. And if we just get rid of that, you know, society will be a utopia. It'll be great. We'll all think straight. And obviously, you know, it didn't work out right (laughs) (laughs) and crime became a huge issue and yeah so when henry arrives at the prison it's the 1920s harry orchard is teaching other inmates how to make shoes patrick murphy is writing books and making hobby crafts in the yard and the shirt factory is under construction in the back of the prison and near the south wall and it would be completed a year later and it would result in hundreds of inmates working there making t-shirts and things so When Henry arrived, he may have been put on some of this construction work, but we don't have any records for what he was up to when he arrived at the prison. Just a few months after his his arrival here in September 1922, all these letters arrive at the prison on his behalf. The owner of the Western Grocery, Bakery, and Delicatessen Company wrote asking for leniency for Henry. An insurance agent named William Jackson Jr. wrote, stating, I have known Mr. Pointer for 14 years and have been in a position to observe his family in our community. I am convinced that he is not of his own natural tendencies a lawbreaker, but rather 
has been the victim of conditions which have heretofore existed in our community. It appears the condition which I believe led to his violation of the law are very largely eliminated, and I believe that the state and the community would be benefited if this man might be pardoned. He has a wife and three or four small children who, it seems, are particularly in need of his support and attention. I feel that the punishment meted thus far has been sufficient, and I have always had hopes that if he were shown some special consideration, he would prove to be a valuable citizen. So I thought this was a fascinating letter because it talks about the conditions which I believe led to his violation of the law are very largely eliminated. And I believe that the state and the community, you know, what what are these conditions? Was there a bootlegging ring that he was a part of? Was there, was there something going on in that, in Pocatello? And I imagine with its connection with the railroad and everything else and being the gateway city, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm kind of curious if there was kind of a underground bootlegging operation that he was unfortunately the one who got busted for it. Mm. There's more to that story and I just could not find it. There were so many people who were busted in Bannock County and it's because of the, you know, prominence of the railroad station and everything there pastor of the First Congregational Church writes on his behalf, and he says that financial conditions in his home are far from satisfactory, and it looks as though there might be suffering amongst the members of his immediate household if he cannot be with them to support them by his labors. After a careful study in this case, I am of the honest opinion that Mr. Pointer is repentant and that he feels entirely different from what he did when he was in the illegal sale of liquor. And the pastor is writing in on his behalf. His neighbor, George Bailey, who owns the bookstore pharmacy in Pocatello, also writes talking about the dire situation of his family and saying, uh, I am making this plea for his little family, whom I see every day, and of the destitute conditions they are in. They need the support of a father who has the talent as a builder, a contractor, and who is a good citizen until he fell into this misfortune. I earnestly plead this letter might appeal to you from the standpoint of a family in need. Of course, not everybody is in favor of his release. A woman named Emma Drake, who is fascinating in her own right and the head of the South Idaho Women's Christian Temperance Union, wrote a terse letter that said uh, they would be very much averse, as much so as ever, to the pardon of Henry Pointer. I do not feel greatly troubled, however, for I know the board was very averse to the pardon or even asking for it and do not think they would change their mind regarding it. She would actually end up running in the Idaho legislature in 1919 and wrote several books and pamphlets on medical advice for women that were really revolutionary. And they'd be termed like hygiene or sex manuals And one of them was called What Every Young Wife Should Know and What Every Woman of 45 Should Know. And she was the first woman in Idaho, first person in general, to talk about sex in public schools. Hmm. She talked about the danger of wearing a corset and called for regular vacations for wives, leaving husbands at home to do household work, which was pretty revolutionary and why she was the head. Yes. So uh, some of the the newspaper things, look up Emma Drake. Like, she is so fascinating. Now, the real turning point began when a Pocatello doctor named W.W. Brothers wrote in asking for Henry's release because he had been taking care of Lena, Henry's wife, and felt that she needed Henry's help very urgently. But he didn't divulge what was wrong with her. So with all the support from the community and the need for Henry to take care of his wife at home, he's actually granted a parole in October 1922. So he, he arrives in April and he's released in October. 
but just kind of a, a temporary one. He's still supposed to return and, and go back to the prison. There are no dates or other mentions about his release. I couldn't find it anywhere that he was released. The only way I know about it is because he wrote a letter into the governor on November 2nd, 1922, telling him about how happy he was to be home with his family. And he says, It was my intention to have my wife's operation performed, but I found her in, a, in poor health, not strong enough to go through with the operation yet, and won't be for some time. I'm working for wages at the carpenter trade now and had work half the time. Pocatello is a dull town now, so there's not a lot of construction projects going on. And uh, then he tells the governor that someone had asked him to sign a contract to build a cottage, but that he didn't want to sign it if he knew he had to return to prison to serve out more of a sentence. So he's requesting from the governor a great favor to me as I need the money very bad and would greatly appreciate a chance to go ahead with the work if I can see your way clear to advise me to go ahead. My wife and I both appreciate what you have done for me, and I am doing all I know to make good. People treat me very kind and seem to be with me and ready to help me in any way they can. And much to Henry's relief, the governor actually responds a week later and informs him to accept the contract and go ahead with the work, doing the very best you can. I shall try to help you in every possible way as long as you continue to make good. And he's fully pardoned just a few weeks later on November 27, 1922, serving just over six months on a one- to two-year sentence for prohibition violation. Huh. Seems that he actually stayed out of trouble until 19, early 1933 when he's again arrested in Idaho Falls with a charge of violation of National Prohibition Act. And he was held on a $1,000 bond. But... I didn't see any information about this charge. There's nothing about it in the newspaper. Well, in 1933, Prohibition... Sh- wait, what What month? It was in early. I think it was January or February. Oh, okay. And prohibition... Because one of the first the things... The 21st Amendment. Yeah, one of the first things FDR did as soon as he was in office, which would have been in March 33, he, he got rid of Prohibition. Yeah, yeah. So the... 18th Amendment is repealed by the 21st Amendment on December 5th, 1933. Mm, okay. So that's, you know, prohibition ends there. And so, you know, I was thinking like, well, maybe maybe he would have been released since it ended by the end of that year and he wouldn't have been charged. And so I started looking up, you know, were people released? And according to Ruth Engs, professor of applied health science at Indiana University, most inmates serving prison sentence for prohibition crimes weren't released immediately after appeal. And uh, many, undoubtedly, they applied to parole boards, but they were still required to serve time for their crimes. And uh, I looked up the last of our prohibition violators, his name was Percy de Bracy, and he was sentenced to between two and five years at the prison. He arrived April 4th, 1932. He was released July 8th, 1935. Oh, wow. About almost two years uh, after prohibition ends. Wow. Yeah. I really want to know what happened to Henry for that 1933 charge if he had to go to a federal prison, if he did something even worse than, you know, just the state felony or or what happened to him but i couldn't find anything but this is the part where i i debated should i tell this guy's story he would eventually return to the prison for the infamous crime against nature at the age of 66 after police kicked down his door and caught him assaulting a young girl in 1942 so yeah i don't want to divulge this i mean 
this crime as a lifetime of harm. Yeah. You know, it did a lifetime of harm to this this girl, and right. he tried to blame the whole situation on his state of mind because he was taking morphine for rheumatism and he was having all these psychological issues. Uh, he's sentenced to serve five to 15 years at the state penitentiary. And he arrived May 14th, 1942. And he's pardoned in a very unhealthy state, April 11th, 1944. So just about two years. And he actually suffers from a cerebrovascular accident in May of 1946 and he dies uh, four days later on May 19th 1946 Mm. you know cerebrovascular accident that's just the medical term for a stroke right yeah that's Henry Pointer and his battle against the hundreds and hundreds of women's clubs (laughs) across the state of Idaho Uh, I, I just found it so fascinating it's just kind of the convergence of you know, women's laws and, and prohibition laws. Right. And yeah, yeah, I just thought it was so fascinating. Yeah. And I wish, you know, his sex crime is just, mm, yeah. just bothers me. But. Yeah, well. So there's um, an interesting book that I read last semester. Um, it's called The War on Alcohol by Lisa McGurr. There's a part in there where she sort of talks about how prohibition was the turning point of the modern penal state that because so and I don't think in Idaho it happened quite as frequently but in larger places that so many people would get arrested for prohibition violations that they had to start implementing more things like probation and you know like lessening sentences and parole had to be start being used a lot more and so that sort of developed into the modern penal state that we know today and so she attributes yeah. that to to prohibition oh yeah i could totally see that mm-hmm. that makes so much sense yeah so my my degree comes in handy sometimes <laughs> it's great and nice. I, and i do recommend that book is a really interesting book if you're looking for sort of a and overall, it's it's pretty short, pretty easy to get through. Uh, the War on Alcohol by Lisa McGurr. So check that out if you're interested. Oh, John Barleycorn, we'll have to let you go. You've made us many a merry time, but also many a Keep 
thank you, Simon Clifford, Zoe Ann, and my wife, Rebecca, for helping me to recreate this Prohibition song by the composer John Stark, published in 1919. You may have guessed that we're not professional singers, but we had fun recreating this little track. It may have had a little help from John Barleycorn himself in its recreation. Cool. Yeah. All right, Sky. Cool. Ooh. Well, who are you talking about today? So today, I am talking about number 11861, Sarah Sue Roach. She is in for a pretty interesting crime. She is in for procurement of prostitution. Thankfully, there aren't too many details about sort of what that means, and I'll get a little bit more into her crime here, obviously, in a little bit. So, yeah, so sources, her inmate file from the state archives, some Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com. I get a lot of information from Ancestry.com, so I'm always so grateful for that resource. Cashtocounty.org and a little bit of Wikipedia like normal. So, Sarah Sue Roach was born Sarah Sue Agnes Creech in Troy, Missouri on May 22, 1910 to Lewis and Lily Creech. Both of them were born in Missouri. There are other records, other marriage records that sort of state her year of birth variably as 1911 and 1914, but her death records state uh, 1910, so I'm pretty sure 1910 is the year that she was born. She was the third oldest of ten kids. She had an older brother, Dewey, and an older sister, Nellie, and then seven kids younger than her. So the family's really large. Her father works as a farmer, and by 1920, the family was living in Oklahoma, and so they probably were all working on on the farm, and I mean, I don't think all ten kids had been born by 1920, but still a pretty large family. So the 1930 census doesn't have her in the family home any longer. So this is where I really struggled to figure out where she had gone after this 1930 census. So according to her inmate file, she claims that the name of her first husband was Roach, and that's why she uses it. But I just scoured Ancestry.com, and I could not find any records of Sarah Sue Creech ever becoming Sarah Sue Roach. It could have been a common law marriage, in which case it wouldn't have been in the records, but I really nowhere in my research could I find any man with the last name Roach. Instead, as I was trying to figure out where in the world she would have gone, there is a, on the first part, the fir- basically the outside of the file of that manila, or the outside of that, basically that file folder, Yeah. they have, you know, the aliases, and there was another alias that her, the name was Sarah Sue Dollahite. And so I was like, well, let me, let me see what's up here. And there is a Sarah Dollahite who's living in Riverside, California in 1930. This Sarah was married to a man named Earl Dollahite, and they had a two-year-old daughter named June Earlene. And so here's why I think it's her. So this is all based on what is listed on the census record in 1930. So Sarah Dollahite is born in Missouri in 1910. It lists both of her parents born in Missouri and it lists her marriage age at 16 years old, which matches the fact that she left her family home before her 20th birthday. And she's living in California. And when she comes into the prison, she says that her daughter lives in California. And so I clicked on her daughter's link on Ancestry.com because you can click on the name and it'll sort of, you know, pull you up to other records. And so there's a recommended record in Nevada. It's a marriage record for a woman named June E. Schultz. And so in Sarah Sue's 
inmate file on the document that lists letters received and sent, she received letters from a woman named June E. Schultz, and when asked to describe her relationship with Schultz, Sarah wrote, parent. So, hmm. in 1930, I'm so certain that Sarah married Earl Dollahite, and uh, so she married when she was 16 years old. They moved to Riverside, California, and um, in 1928, they had a daughter named June Earlene. So that was kind of a fun little, that just to give you sort of my thought process of how to try to figure out where in the world she disappeared to. So unless she married someone named Roach before that, but getting married at 16 is pretty young to then divorce and get married yeah. again. So it seems far more likely that this Earl Dalahite is her first husband. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, just, I said they were married in Missouri, but they were actually married in Arkansas in 1926. After this 1930 census, we lose track of her until 1950. And in 1950, she is in Clark, Washington, applying for a marriage license with a man named Herbert D. Cobble. She's applying for the license under the name Sarah S. Walker. This is another thing that I couldn't figure out. She uses this name Walker quite a bit. I don't know if it's another husband. I couldn't find any record of a Walker husband connected to her. Sarah Walker, obviously, is going to be a near impossible name to trace. <laughs> right. Uh, so I don't know how she got that last name Walker, but it is a name that she uses um, pretty frequently. I don't know why she isn't married to Earl Dalahite. My guess, based on her future track record, is it's probably because of, of a divorce, but I don't know if he died or... Because there weren't any records that popped up when I clicked on his name or searched his name. Hmm. So, in 1950, she marries Herbert D. Cobble. Then in 1952, she marries Eugene or Jean H. Downey in Vancouver, Washington, but they had been living in Tillamook, Oregon. So within two years, she was divorced from Cobble. She marries Jean Downey, and this also ends in divorce because in 1962, she marries Orville Oscar Jett in Burley, Idaho. This marriage also ends in divorce, not sure of the year, but I do know that the couple live in Burley, and in Burley, Sarah Sue and presumably Orville, they own a bar and grill called Sierra Sue's on Main Street. I don't know where on Main Street it was located. I tried to, to figure that out, but there weren't any records I could find of that. So here's a really, this is actually one of my favorite tidbits of like any of the women that I've researched. On October 9th, 1963, an Idaho Daily Statesman clip, um, basically clipping, announced that Mrs. Sarah Sue Walker announced for a candidacy in the Burley mayoral race. Yeah. You may be, like, asking the question, why? And what was her platform? Well, your guess is as good as mine, because I never could find any reason why she decided to run, what her platform was, but she decided to run in a mayoral race with, uh, it actually was a record number of mayoral candidates for Burley at the time. There were five people running. And so on November 7th, the winner is announced. A man named Mac Crouch beat the incumbent mayor, J. Leonard Salmon, with 685 votes to 459. Sarah won 22 votes. She won about 1% of all the votes cast. <laughs> so she didn't do great, but she did get 22 votes. So that's, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to say impressive, but that's something. So 
I just really am not sure why she got involved in this mayoral race. I'm not sure how her business was doing. I'm not sure how she got into basically what she's charged with. I'm assuming that the business may not have been going well because above Sierra Sue's, she may or may not have had a house of prostitution. What we do know is that in 1964, Sarah came into contact with a woman named Gladys Plitch. Gladys was born on October 16, 1933 in San Francisco, California to Edward and Gladys Plitch. Around in December 1956, she supposedly married a man named Jesse Jones in Butte, Montana. So these records were sort of fuzzy. Around 1957, she may have married a man named Joe Polia and had a son named Joseph Polia, but there wasn't any official marriage record. The only reason that I know about her son is because he listed both of his parents when he got married um, in Montana. Uh. And so we know that she had a son with a man named Joe Polia. Whether they were married or not, I'm not sure. In March 1961, she married a man named Edward Mark Harris in Boise. And presumably, the marriage with Harris didn't go well because she ends up in Burley, working above Sarah Sue's for Sarah in 1964. So let's leave them there for just a minute, and we're going to talk a little bit about Burley. I think I've talked about this a little bit before, but here's a little bit of a deeper dive into Burley. So... Of course, the area had uh, was home to Native Americans, and actually it was home to Paleo-Indians about 15,000 to 16,000 years ago, which I was thinking about this the other day. My brain can't even comprehend 15,000 years ago. <laughs> right, Like, yeah. I can't even fathom it to me, but that's, I mean, so that's really neat. And then in more recent history, uh, Shoshone-Bannock Native Americans occupied the land. The first white settler in the Burley area was a man named Charles Gamble. He was a 22-year-old from Maryland where he settled with some cowboy associates in 1866. Earlier in the 1860s, thousands of pioneers had passed through the area on the Oregon and California trails. Around 1901-1902, a passenger agent for the Oregon Short Line Railroad Company named David E. Burley traveled through the area, and he kept traveling through, and so he sort of became familiar with the area and its ability to grow sugar beets. And when six other men, and one of them was I.B. Perrin, he began platting a town on the south bank of the Snake River in 1905, they named it Burley, I think because of David E. Burley's skill in an understanding of what that land could do. And so the town was incorporated on July 9th, 1909. At this time, when Burley was was incorporated, citizens actually wanted to move the county seat of Cache County from Albion, Idaho to Burley. They said, we are really determined to move this. And everyone said, okay, well, good luck. And they didn't succeed in moving this county seat until 1918. So it took them nine years to get that county seat moved to Burley. Most of Burley is in Casha County, and that's including the county courthouse, which was built in 1939, and if I remember correctly, is on the National Register for Historic Places. But there are some parts of Burley that are actually in Minidoka County, so it um, is sort of spread between two, two counties uh, down there in south, southeastern Idaho. So 
In modern day, Burley is home to the Idaho Regatta, which is a huge boat race that takes place on the Snake River. And so the <sighs> the 45th annual Idaho Regatta is going to be June 25th through June 28th, 2020. Lots, obviously, the main big boat race, but there's also a boat parade, there's qualifying races, and there's even a swim break. So if you are interested in boat races and, and getting out to Burley in the summer, feel free to go check out the Idaho Regatta. Burley is also home to the Spudman Triathlon. Uh, this is a very serious triathlon, but they've held it for several years, and it's always on the last Saturday in July. So this year the triathlon is on July 25th, and registration is now open if you are interested in that. I saw one of the rules on the website was that you can't wear headphones, and that's how I know that this uh-huh. is a serious... Uh, race. So um, I don't know if it's used as qualifying for other big triathlons or what what the deal is there. But So if you're interested in triathlons, feel free to check out the Spudman Triathlon in Burley, Idaho. So the population of Burley in 2010 was about 10,345, and the 2018 estimate is 10,525. So not a lot of growth uh, in the last decade, but kind of remains steady with about 10,000 people out there. All right, so back to Sarah's crime. So between March 6th and March 13th, 1964, Sarah prostituted out Gladys Plitch, who went by the, the alias Terry Riley. So she was arrested. The official charge that she was arrested for was procurement of a female for the purpose of prostitution, accepting the earnings of a prostitute, and harboring a prostitute. So there were sort of three all involved. And when she was arrested, the district judge, Lloyd J. Webb, stated that she owned a house of prostitution, but it seems that she was only held under the prostitution of Gladys Plitch, particularly. So I don't know if there were multiple women involved, if this was the only one that they could definitively point to. I'm not really sure of the specifics there. Sarah pled guilty to the charges and she was placed on probation, quote, which she proceeded to violate it as many ways as she could. (laughs) And so she was arrested again when she was convicted of petty larceny in the city court. During her probation, she also failed to keep her probation officer advised of her place of residence, failed to make reports with the probation officer, and failed to honestly keep the court advised of her condition of health. And there was a condition of her probation that was she was supposed to spend 60 days in the county jail, but she claimed that she was too ill, and so instead she was supposed to let the court know about her health, and she didn't do that. So because she violated her probation... She was arrested again on the original charge and sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary on September 21st, 1965. Her inmate records do state that she entered the penitentiary on her original date of arrest on March 13th, 1964, but that's just the first date that she was sort of under, you know, the state's jurisdiction, I guess. So her statistics, so her sentence uh, was for three years for procurement for a prostitution, accepting the earnings of a prostitute, and harboring a prostitute. She was 55 years old when she entered the penitentiary, uh, born in Missouri. Her occupation was a cook, which again, if she owns that bar and grill, makes sense. She was 5'2", 170 pounds, had brown hair and brown eyes. She seems kind of smiley in her mugshot, kind of a 
a smug <laughs> look. Like, she's, she doesn't care. Now, she does have a Bertillion, one of the few that I've covered so far that has. Most of it is just scars. She has some scars on her legs. She did have an 8-inch surgery scar on her stomach that may have been a C-section scar. She had a 4-inch surgery scar sort of right at her ribs. She had a couple scars on her face. But other than that, nothing too, I guess, egregious to report. She did have false teeth. That's kind of interesting. So um, the district judge said upon her entry, quote, she has no respect for the law and no desire to comply with it. Despite her advanced age and poor health, there was no alternative but to commit her. I would suggest that the likelihood of living a parole for her is no better than it was here. So meaning in Burley, I would, however, recommend a minimum confinement. In prison, Sarah started to change her behavior and um, at the same time, her health started to get worse. She wrote 14 letters to her daughter and received nine in return. And then she also wrote to a man named Charles Barker. Uh, she wrote him 133 letters, which is a lot of letters. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, so, but, and that's this is between 1965 and 1966. So 133 total, I think it was basically like 65 a year. She only received about 48 back. What the circumstances were were of getting so few back I don't know he just maybe he wasn't a man of many words she just really was enthusiastic about writing him I don't know but Charles um if he wasn't sending her letters he he did send her some packages um some very full packages and so throughout 65 and 66 he sent her a total of two packages and these packages included items like Vienna sausages fruit juice lotion salad dressing cookies, cake, bread, shampoo, and even jam for her bread. So he was clearly taking care of her and kind of getting her things that, that she might like. So in June 1966, Sarah asked the Board of Pardons for a parole. She wanted to return to Burley to sort of clean up and then sell her property. I don't think there was any use in, you know, keeping the property in the fact that it did get her into trouble. Um, she seemed to sort of give up that vocation, basically. She also wanted a travel permit so she could move from place to place with her common-law husband who worked on water wells. So she was granted parole under these conditions, um, subject to good behavior effective for August 23rd, 1966. So that's in June. And then a month later in July, the Board of Pardons found out that when she requested a parole, she actually was really looking for a final release. And in this request, she asked permission to marry her common-law husband because she was a Nazarene and her religion didn't allow her to live in a common-law marriage. And she also asked for 15 or 20 days to be shaved off of her parole on account of her hard work while she was in the prison. Some on the board voted to deny her second motion, but despite this, it does seem that she actually got 10 days shaved off um, because she was released on August 13th, 1966, instead, instead of August 23rd. So I was kind of confused by that because it said in her file that that motion was denied, but she got out 10 days early anyway. So on her release date, she served 10 months and 22 days in the Idaho State Penitentiary. With her probation, though, before she came into the prison, she was sort of under state jurisdiction for two years and five months. So two days after her release, she married 
Charles Barker in Boise. And so Charles, of course, was her common-law husband. He was born in Burley. He was from Burley. He was five years her junior, which is interesting. So good for her. So a year later, as her parole officer um, was checking up on her, he stated that since her parole, she always checked in with her probation officer, made a home for herself and her husband, and, quote, conducted herself very well in public. Her poor health continued, and I couldn't find any details as to what this poor health constituted. She was in her 50s and getting older. Her parole officer believed that this, quote, restricted her considerably from any backslide into the type of life she had lived previously. So because she her health is sort of deteriorating, she isn't going back into this life of crime, basically. So after this report, she is granted a final discharge a year after she was released in August 1967. Between 1966 and 1970, or I guess it would be 1967 and 1970, she and Charles separated. So this record that I found, it might not be her, and so I'm sort of hesitant to include it, but it might. It was included sort of, again, on that, like, those recommended records on Ancestry.com. Because it says in 1970 that she remarried Orville Oscar Jett in Las Vegas, Nevada, and married him under the name Juanita S. Jett. Juanita? Yeah. Uh, that's why, That's sort of why I'm like, oh, I don't know if it is her. The S could be, you know, Sarah or Sue. Here's why I think it might be her and why she would need to use the name Juanita is because she didn't get officially divorced from Charles Barker until 1972. So if she married Jet again in Las Vegas, you can't use your same name because then you're going to get charged with bigamy. Right. And so if this is her, and it, it might not be her, she may have just, uh, you know, her and Charles may have been together until 1972. It's, it's possible that that is her. It's also possible it's not. So sort of take that with a grain of salt. The one that we know for sure is her is that divorce record from Charles in 1972. If she did marry Orville, uh, it seems that that second marriage didn't last very long, and she actually divorced Charles in Oregon, so she would have returned to Oregon by 72, and then from Oregon, she returned to Idaho. Does that all make sense? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, she would have married Jet in Vegas. That second marriage wouldn't have lasted. She moved back to Oregon and divorced Charles in Oregon, and then from Oregon went to Idaho by herself. Yeah. Okay. In 1972, there is a record in her inmate file that Sarah was trying to claim workers' compensation for an unnamed injury on an unnamed job. It was a Twin Falls investigative company, and they were asking the prison for her complete medical records while she was incarcerated, I think, basically to see, is this injury due to a pre-existing condition, or is it, you know, truly like a workman's comp sort of issue? So we don't hear anything from her again until 1978, and on November 23rd, 1978, she remarries Eugene Downey, who she had first married in 1952. So 23 years later, she remarries Eugene Downey in San Bernardino, California. And Eugene, I didn't notice this the first time, but in California, when they got married, he was 14 years her junior. What? Yeah. So in 78, she would have been 68 years old. So he was 54. (laughs) That's a lot of years a junior, um, especially for (laughs) women to be older. So, 
she died on December 13th, 1983 in Humboldt, California. She was 73 years old. I'm not sure if she was still married to Eugene. She died under the name Sarah Sue Downey. So, you know, I think regardless of if they were divorced or not, she did keep his last name. And unfortunately, there is no description of of how she died. Um, But we do know that is when she died. So that is Sarah Sue Roach's story. Interesting. Yeah, so we don't really know her crime. like Right. I mean, other than, I, I mean, the fact that, that she basically was Gladys Plitch's madame. Um, yeah. Uh, and like I said, I, I'm the, the district judge said that she owned a house of prostitution, which implies that there are multiple women being held. And I, my, the, my assumption when I first found out about this election and the fact that she got 22 votes is I wondered if the 22 votes were basically like her and the prostitutes that she was ahead of basically. Right. Um, if she was just like, you're going to vote for me, but obviously I don't have any evidence to corroborate that. I just imagined that that was how it was. And, and I think because prostitution, uh, especially in the 1960s, fell under the category of, of sex crime. These are sort of those things that officials prefer not to, to get into details of. Yeah. And, and I think, honestly, that's quite fair to the victims, like Gladys. You know, it may have been a money issue. She may have gotten into it willingly. She also may not have. She may have, uh-huh. you know, Sarah may have started talking to her, and she might have said, oh, I'm trying to find a job. I my marriage isn't going well. And Sarah said like, Oh, let me help you out. And then basically, you know, held her against her will. We don't know, unfortunately, the circumstances of that. Still, I still think she's a very interesting character. For sure. And I think, I think her mugshot in a way sort of paints almost like the whole story. Um, you can see in her face, this whole attitude of, I think, basically sort of this idea that she would sort of be a, a madame of a house of prostitution. She doesn't seem to be overly upset, you know, that she was caught. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's 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 kind of funny. Like the grin on her face is just. There aren't many mug shots like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I mean it's a it's a it's not a an innocent crime, but it's also not one of the worst. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I always feel bad because, again, you always have such good details. Well, it's, you know, that's kind of just telling that, you know, men's files are jam-packed full of details. And journalists wrote more about men's crimes. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, historically we could see that. Women were not regarded as as the criminals, that they were just like victims of circumstance in most cases. And their crimes, you know, they have to serve their time, but they won't serve the same amount as the man and we just don't have that many details it's pretty pretty interesting yeah i tried to choose some women this season that i know had more details so i'm hoping that i'll be able to give some more complete stories i know i am doing fedora crawford and that one is going to be pretty short but i love her story but i am i am trying to find some more details for for some of our women 
this season. So stay tuned for that. I promise it's not just like, oh, we can't find anything on her. Yeah. Sometimes they just don't ever appear in the records, and sometimes their files are really small. So yeah, do what we yeah, can with what we have. That's the fun of our research is mm-hmm. that we do. We have to dig so much and mm-hmm. misspell names so <laughs> many different ways to figure out, you know, the victim and then the inmate, how they were listed in the newspaper. Right. And sometimes we don't find it. Sometimes we find it after we record the episode, yes. which is always like, no. Which Anthony did that with Susie Duffy. Ugh. Which, what, was that season? That was last season, season two. That was, yeah. Can you give me, can you give us the details of that, if you remember them? Yes. Susie Duffy herself was a sex worker, and we had we had never quite figured out what her crime was, because it wasn't listed anywhere, like these others. And finally, I found that she had a John, and he had a wallet full of money, and she, you know, went up to, to do her service and ended up leaving with his wallet and actually fleeing to i believe oregon and she was extradited back to boise to to serve her time and i remember when we did that episode it was like we don't know what Mm -hmm. her crime was Mm -hmm. we had no idea any details and it was only because i finally found an article that referred to an african-american woman being locked up and and extradited back from oregon and then I kind of tracked down there was a name of the victim, and then I started looking for the victim's name, and then it came up to her, and it had all these different spellings for her name and descriptions of her. It was it's so uh-huh. tedious, the yeah. amount of work that goes into searching it. But, you know, uh-huh. you get such a big, like, <gasps> you know, yeah. uh, this is so cool. It's and so exciting yeah. to find that stuff. That's yeah. And that's what happened with Fedora Crawford is we had, I think, like two – pieces of paper in her her file and it was just like what where can i look what can i be searching for it's yeah. uh it's a real uh it's a really fun like cat and mouse game with henry pointer there there wasn't a lot of details on his crime and it it took me forever to find him even getting busted because most of the information was just like the women's groups going against his mm-hmm. paroles and and releases and so I, that's why I went down so many side rabbit holes this week trying to highlight Prohibition and, mm-hmm. you know, the Kasiska family. I'm just so blown away by his story about being a mayor and this prominent citizen and then being busted. And then, like, Pocatello taking control of his hotel for months and months and because he, he wouldn't stop selling liquor and booze and how it was just essentially a slap on the wrist to him mm-hmm. even though he probably did way more than henry ever did right. uh selling liquor because of his position he was never never sent to prison or anything he just had his you know wrist slapped and then the senator ends up buying this hotel from him for millions and millions of dollars it's just you know how the class system affected if you were going to go to prison for one of these charges uh, well that wasn't just in prohibition my friend Oh, yeah. Still <laughs> still today, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a funny little rabbit hole to go down. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I hope everybody liked it because, yeah, I, I tend to go down a lot of rabbit holes. <laughs> well, Sky, this has been fun. Yeah. And, yeah, let's keep going. 2020. 2020. Uh, everybody do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. 
you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.